Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please, as you join me in welcoming Father Sly, if you could please stand and he'll say the opening prayer. Good evening. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night and the privilege that we have to gather together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we are able to do it openly and publicly in a world where in other countries this is not possible at this moment. We pray that you would continue to pour out your grace upon us and that this night might be a night of unveiling and understanding, that we might go forth in even stronger ways to be followers, true followers of Jesus Christ and of his church. And so tonight, as we begin this time together, let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, tonight we're going to begin a three-part series that continues the discussion that we had earlier talking about the kingdom of the cults, some of the different cults. And we've looked at, uh, I believe, what, Mormonism, Melanie? We looked at Mormonism, Seventh-day Adventism, uh, and Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, tonight it gets a little wilder than that uh, with the Church of Scientology. Next week we're going to talk about Freemasonry, and the week after that the Baha'i Faith. Um, which is a group, especially here in Northern Virginia, that's really taking on a lot more initiative uh, in recent uh, months and years. And, uh, you know, as we all know, a cult basically is a group that f is f uh, following a false, unorthodox, or extreme uh, definition of faith, and it's outside of conventional society and outside the norms of, um, of religion for the most part. And tonight's uh, group, the Church of Scientology, definitely fits that in, in a number of ways. And so, before we get started, I want to just read some scripture, because if I didn't, Father, uh, Deacon Sabatino would call me on the phone right now from his travels and warn me that I need to get the Bible out and start doing this. By the way, how many of you have your Bibles tonight? Okay, now... I have an assignment for you during this evening, those of you that have your Bibles. And if you don't, one still might pop in to your mind, and that is, tonight you are going to be the apologists. I have got so much material to cover, I could probably go three weeks, morning, noon, and night, on Scientology and not even come close to covering this really uh, wild group. Uh, but what I want to do is we go along... Tonight, I want you to be the apologists as we look at this. And as 
we begin to talk about some of the beliefs and some of the practices, there may be a scripture that comes to mind, a verse. If there is, just raise your hand. And uh, let's see if, if we might be able to kind of help each other to see some of the pitfalls. Obviously, uh, there is no Christian facade to the Church of Scientology. There is no Christology to Scientology. In fact, there's very little theology to Scientology. Okay? Um, and you'll see that as we go along. But to begin with, this is um, a reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Galatians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. And he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel, not that there is another gospel. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. So, good warning for us as we enter into a discussion of a very intriguing group. And I first heard about, how many of you heard of the Church of Scientology? How many of you know a whole lot about it? Okay, I'll put my hand out too. No, uh, seriously, okay, how many of you had heard about L. Ron Hubbard? Okay, how many thought of him as a science fiction writer? Yeah. See, I, I grew up in, in the time where he was known for his science fiction and fantasy writing. And then in the 60s, many of you may remember, he came out with this wild book called Dianetics. And uh, we're going to get into that in just a second, because that's the basis for Scientology. And then a little later on, uh, the Church of Scientology was actually... Uh, established. It was established a lot earlier than the book really took on its prominence in the 60s. But the Church of Scientology and Dianetics is a product of the 40s and 50s. But for me personally, my real involvement with Scientology began in 2009. At that time, I was uh, the associate editor for Catholic Online. The uh, uh, Catholic.org. It's a news organization on the web. I was the associate editor, and I was given the assignment of looking into Scientology. And I didn't have a whole lot of, of uh, knowledge of it at the time, but I learned very quickly. And part of the reason that it gained some interest back in 2009 is there were a lot of things going on in terms of unexplained occurrences, uh, very violent and evil things that were coming out as reports that were taking place within the Church of Scientology. And the St. Petersburg Times in the Tampa Bay area put out a multi-part series on Scientology that won a Pulitzer Prize. And it was an amazing expose on the group. And because they're headquartered right in that area, it, it was, uh, took on a lot of import. Well, the other reason why there was a lot of interest at that time in Scientology is that they were levying a lot of lawsuits at the time. In fact, one against the Daughters of St. Paul in France. Uh, another uh, aspect of it is there were many lawsuits being levied against Scientology by former members that were claiming a whole lot of horrific treatment and uh, harassment. Uh, 
The other thing was the harassment of reporters. There was a man at that time by the name of Tommy Davis who was kind of in charge of public relations. Uh, but it really was more public harassment. In fact, as I began to write my articles, I wrote probably about 20 articles all total. But as I wrote the first few, all of a sudden he obtained my cell phone number and began to call me. Um, and so and this was a typical thing that they would begin a harassment process. So anyway, that is, is what got me involved in uh, learning a little bit about the Church of Scientology. So let's kind of find out, before we get into Scientology, let's meet L. Ron Hubbard, Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. And uh, he was born in March 13, 1911, and he passed away June tw or January 24th, 1986. Uh, known as L. Ron Hubbard, and within Scientology, they just called him LRH. And uh, he was born in Tilden, Nebraska, and his early childhood was spent mostly in Helena, Montana. Now this is where it gets interesting, because the biography that you get from Scientology is different from the biography that you get when you approach members of the family and others and ask them what his growing up years were like. For example, in Scientology's profile, he was brought up on his grandfather's large cattle ranch in Montana. His grandfather was a wealthy western cattleman and uh, from whom Hubbard had inherited his fortune and family interests in America, South Africa, etc. And they also reported and claimed that he became a blood brother of the Native American Blackfoot tribe at the age of six through friendship with the Blackfoot medicine man. However, public records show that his grandfather, Lafayette Waterbury, and he's the one that he was named after, Lafayette, was a veterinarian, not a rancher, was not wealthy. Hubbard was raised in a townhouse in the center of Helena, Montana. And according to his aunt, they didn't have a ranch, they had a cow and four or five horses. That was it. And there wasn't a Blackfoot reservation within 100 miles of the area. Later on, and by the way, his, his father was in the military. He was in the United States Navy. And so as he grew older, he began to travel with his family uh, over to Asia and the South Pacific, living in Guam while his father was uh, stationed there. And then later came back where his father was stationed here in Washington, D.C. And so after uh, graduating from high school, he attended George Washington University. So there's a local connection to him. However, after about two years, he dropped out. And that's when he began his writing career, writing pulp fiction and uh, writing uh, sci-fi later on, science fiction. And this was in uh, the 1930s. So again, we're talking early on in, in the life and career of L. Ron Hubbard. Now, he also briefly served in the United States Marine Corps, and then during World War II was a junior officer in the United States Navy. Uh, he served as the commander of two ships. One was the USS YP-422, and then the USS Patrolcraft 815. Uh, According to the sources that I garnered, he was removed from command from both ships due to his incapability for, of command. 
Um, and so, and his last days in active duty were spent nursing a duodenal ulcer. So he basically did not have a stellar military career. Um, and again, he established his main career as a writer of fiction and uh, science fiction and fantasy, and then began to develop the self-help system called Dianetics. And that was first published in book form in, the ni in 1950, in May. And uh, it's interesting, I found this one source, and uh, I, I couldn't pull it back up again to give you the exact uh, location for it, but it was an interesting quote. And that was back at a writer's conference in the 1940s where he was a speaker. And he said that being a writer wasn't a great way to make a living at a penny a word. He says, if you want to make a lot of money, start your own religion. So anyway, um, in his um, autobiographies, uh, he would state that he saw himself as a pioneering explorer, world traveler, nuclear physicist. Uh, that was what he said he studied at George Washington University. He was really civil engineering. Um, close. Close, yeah. A uh, wide range of disciplines in which he had expertise, including photography, art, poetry, and philosophy. Um, in some of the other biographical sketches, including one by his own son, he was called a liar, a charlatan, and, a, and mentally unstable. So um, you can see that there's a bit of a disagreement between the, the published biographies and some of the other biographies from the families. Uh, when confronted with those claims, the Church of Scientology still stands by their biography saying that they believe that it is historical fact. Now, um, in 1945, and this is where it gets interesting. Um, well, let me, let me just quickly finish his biography. Uh, in the 1960s and 70s, he spent most of his time at sea through the, uh, the Church of Scientology's organization called Sea Organization, Sea Org. We'll spend a little bit of time talking about that. And he basically never uh, went anywhere ashore. He just went from port to port. He be, claimed himself to be the commodore of the fleet uh, that he had. And then Britain, Greece, Spain, Portugal, and Venezuela all closed their ports uh, to the Sea Org, and so he eventually had to come back to America. Uh, the Court of Australia it had revoked his church's status, and the High Court of France had convicted him as a felon in uh, the case of fraud in absentia, and so he couldn't go to France, so he came home. Uh, basically, he went into seclusion in 1975, and in 1983, he was... Um, uh, named as an unindicted co-conspirator in an international infiltration and theft project. And, uh, but he spent his remaining years in the California desert at a ranch where he died in 1986. So he died very quietly, but even though he was behind the scenes, he maintained uh, absolute control of the Church of Scientology until the day he died. But this is where it gets interesting, and some of this information is, is relatively newer in terms of, of being given to the public. But in 1945, Hubbard moved... Let me see. I'm, let me get you caught up here. I was so interested in being sure I had my notes correct. Less than, yeah, there it is. Writer, Pulp Fiction. Oh, multiple marriages. Yes. He was married to Polly, and while he was married to Polly, he fell in love with Sarah and married her. And he was married to both of them for, at the same time for a year, then finally divorced his first wife, 
made it, and then he and I went on with his second wife, and then he actually married again later on. So there's been bigamy and multiple marriages. He died at his ranch in Creston, California. Okay, L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics. It was introduced in 1949. As I said, it went to book form in 1950. Now, before the book, Hubbard was involved in the occult and a group called Thelema. And Thelema was basically Aleister Crowley's occult organization out of England. And um, he, he got involved with Aleister Crowley through a man by the name of Jack Whiteside Parsons, who was a jet propulsion researcher in California, but on the side, he was an occultist and a member of Crowley's organization. They were called Thelemites. And uh, he was also a part of uh, the leader of a lodge that Crowley had established called the Ordo Templi Orientis. And so what he began to do in California is to gather people like himself uh, who had an interest in the occult, an interest in things that, that go beyond the normal to the paranormal. And he and uh, Hubbard became friends, and he invited Hubbard uh, to come and stay with him at his home. The downside to that is that Hubbard became involved with, uh, with Parsons' girlfriend, Sarah, <laughs> in the process. But in, in, in spite of that, they began to collaborate. And in fact, Parsons reported to Aleister Crowley how impressed he was with L. Ron Hubbard. He said, Hubbard is a gentleman. He has red hair, green eyes, is honest, intelligent, and we've become great friends. He moved in with me about two months ago, and although Betty and I, now his girlfriend was Sarah, but his wife was Betty, uh, are still friendly, she's transferred his sex, her sexual attraction or affection to Ron. This guy's just all over the map. <laughs> although he has no formal training in magic, he has an extraordinary amount of experience and understanding of the field. For some of his experiences, I'm deduced that he is in direct touch with some higher intelligence, perhaps his guardian angel. He describes his angel as a beautiful winged woman with red hair whom he calls Empress that has guided him throughout his life. He is the most thelemic person I have ever met and, I am, and is in complete accord with our own principles. So in the 1940s, uh, he became a part of that whole occult move begun by Aleister Crowley, who also initiated, of course, the New Age movement. Now, Parsons and Hubbard also collaborated on the thing they call Babylon Working, <laughs> which was a sexual magic ritual. And I don't want to go into detail. All I can say is that they do very perverted stuff to bring about very supernatural results. And if you want... Later, I'll, you know, you can look for it yourself. Babylon working. <laughs> um, needless to say, it was, it was, uh, they should have gone to confession instead. <laughs> they also set up an, uh, an uh, I'll go back to that. They set up a, another enterprise, too, called the Allied Enterprises. And Allied Enterprises is that they were going to buy boats on the East Coast, sail them, uh, around and to the West Coast and make a lot of money selling them on the West Coast. And so Parsons put a lot of money into the project. And, uh, and Hubbard put some money into the project. But what they ended up doing is they bought yachts in Miami and they were going to sail them, but instead of going to the West Coast, uh, Hubbard took Sarah and went on a world cruise. Uh, 
to the point where he basically um, threw them, you know, drove them out of business. In fact, Aleister Crowley, they say, wrote to Parsons and said, I suspect Ron is playing a confidence trick on you. Let me get this back here again. There we are. Um, anyway, it ended up that, that Parsons had to basically go bankrupt. The only thing he had left over was a $2,900 promissory note from Hubbard. He had to sell his mansion. He had to sell everything, and he was basically destitute uh, from his dealings with L. Ron Hubbard. In 1948, then, uh, following this, this is when Hubbard and Sarah moved to Savannah, and this is where he began his work in Dianetics as he volunteered time in hospitals and mental wards. And in 1949 is when he wrote this, it was, which he called his Book of Psychology, where he basically claimed that he had the understanding of the cause and cure for nervous tension. And he was going to call the book The Dark Sword, Excalibur, or Science of the Mind. And then uh, he actually took a lot of his findings and submitted them to both the American Medical Association and the American Journal of Psychiatry, and both of them rejected him flat out and said there is no empirical data, there's no validity to these things, we don't want anything to do it, with it. And so Dianetics was announced in Astounding Fiction magazine instead, <laughs> where he was a regular contributor with his short stories on science fiction. Okay, well what is Dianetics? The brain records every experience and event in a person's life. And what happens, however, is the bad experiences, which he called engrams, lodge in what he calls the reactive mind. And these can come back later on in life to haunt you and make things bad for you. Now, so far, I mean, except for labeling and everything, that's kind of true. You know, we all have things from the past. Some of us have been abused. Some of us have uh, gone through tough times. A lot of things happen that do have an impact on us later on in life. But this is where it gets interesting. Because what he proposed was that a person needed to go through what he called auditing, where basically they would take and regress you back to the point of re-experiencing your past experience in order to get clear of that experience. In other words, it's a regression therapy where you go back, you confront your past at a point in the past. Again, does that, now we're starting to depart from good Christian theology, aren't we? You know, regressing back, addressing it in the past, in order to enable the engrams to become clear, that's the, the key word, is that you want to be in a state of clear that will give you a perfect functioning mind with an improved IQ and a photographic memory. And they had all of these study materials for doing just that. He also claimed that being clear would cure a lot of physical ailments as well, helping your physical condition. Well, it was out of Dianetics and out of this study that he had that he began the Church of Scientology. It began as the Hubbard Association of Scientologists International in 1952. But then the Church of Scientology was uh, organized in 1953 and equipped, I mean, excuse me, incorporated 
uh, that year. The first Church of Scientology was in Los Angeles of 1954 was when it was organized. And it was interesting because the first Scientologists that were a part of the association had no idea that there was going to be any religion involved. And it was later on that he announced through one of his newsletters that this was in fact going to become a religion. It's going to become a church. And then he did in fact incorporate and establish the church. And he had official complete control until 1966 of everything that went on in the Church of Scientology. It was that year that he was forced to turn it over to an executive board, although behind the scenes he still was in complete control of Scientology. And he actually remained in control until the time of his death in 1986. And after his death, a man by the name of David Miscavige took control. And there he is. All five foot five of him. Boy, could you see him behind this lectern? <laughs> He'd be down there. Anyway, that's David Miscavige, and he is the one that is, that is really controlling all of the Church of Scientology now. Um, the church claims... Oh, well, let me give this first. The, the land base is found in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, they took uh, Fort Harrison Hotel down there and created a, a whole lavish, beautiful headquarters there. And, of course, there's a West Coast headquarters in Los Angeles. There's the Celebrity Center in Hollywood. Can anybody name an actor that might be associated with Scientology? Tom Cruise. Who else? It's John Travolta. Christy Alley. Nancy Cartwright, Will Smith, Smith. (laughs) Kelly Preston, the list goes on and on and on. And uh, just for the guys in the back, I do have some pictures later on so that you can see some of them. But the the Celebrity Center in Hollywood is is quite an amazing place. I actually, back in 2009, saw some footage from there of Tom Cruise's birthday party. And let me tell you, it was quite a, a, a crazy, wild, and amazing event. Golden Era Productions, the media production company in L.A., you cannot hold a candle to it. It is one of the finest production facilities in the world. They produce quality work. It's amazing. uh, And, of course, they have a number of filmmakers uh, and others that are involved in Scientology, so they have at their disposal the cream of the crop of all of the Hollywood uh, notables to do a lot of production. They also have a 185,000-square-foot distribution center out there stocked with materials that, can be, uh, that are sent out 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So it, quite an amazing place. And then there, are, of course, are affiliate or, affiliated organizations, and some of you may have heard of some of these. Um, one of them is called Narconon. It's a drug and rehabilitation uh, work. And it uses Scientology materials uh, to treat drug and rehabilita- uh, to do their drug and rehabilitation work. Criminon is an offshoot of Narconon. It's offender re- rehabilitation again using Scientology materials. Applied Scholastics is basically uh, an organization that helps to use, uh, utilize, and promote Scientology study materials. The Way to Happiness Foundation is a group that promotes uh, L. Ron Hubbard's uh, moral codes. Uh, 
We don't have time, folks. I, I wish we did. We don't have time. The World Institute of Scientology Enterprises. This is where you learn his management techniques. Scientology in 2005 claimed 8 million members, including 3.5 million members that were reported in 2007. Now, of this number, they are quick to say that those included the individuals who took the introductory course but did not stay with Scientology. A city, of, a city University of New York study, however, in 2001, found only 55,000 in the United States during that year. And the American Religious Identification Survey now indicates their estimate is closer to 25,000. Scientologists in America, and you'll you'll see later on in an interview that I do that uh, their numbers are dropping, uh, and their influence is really uh, going away. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the negative press, the the revelations that have come of things that have taken place uh, within the group. It's it's really something. L. Ron Hubbard. So uh, the worldwide estimate by observers from that 25,000 is maybe worldwide 100,000 to 200,000 people. Here is L. Ron Hubbard's goal for Scientology. A civilization without insanity, without criminals, and without war where the able can prosper and honest beings can have the rights and where man is free to rise to greater heights are the aims of Scientology. Heaven on earth. One of the other groups that's a part of Scientology is called the Sea Organization or Sea Org. Really, in a sense, these are Scientology's monks and nuns. They are kind of the religious elite among them. And it started in 1967 as a true sea unit. This was when L. Ron Hubbard was at sea all of the time. And the people that crewed the ships were called uh, the volunteers of the Sea Organization. And Hubbard, who himself had been a lieutenant commander, I mean, excuse me, lieutenant junior grade, much different, lieutenant junior grade in the Navy, uh, was named Commodore of the Fleet. Um, but the Sea Org later, as they grew, became more of a fraternal organization, similar to a religious order, and was only open to those who were the most dedicated from among the Scientologists in the rank and file. You basically had to be invited upward. And they led the elite in advanced sections, the, 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 the major areas of work. Uh, and again, uh, the interview is with a lady who was a part of the Sea Org and one of the high uh, ups in the organization. And uh, she'll tell you a couple of the things that were going on there. Oh, my goodness. Okay, we've got to hustle. Um, there have been a lot of uh, problems. One is the, million, the members have to sign a billion-year contract. <laughs> That's because they do believe that they can live forever. They also have what's called the Rehabilitation Project Force. The Rehabilitation Project Force is basically a second chance for the members who goofed up. It's basically a concentration camp. And uh, for five hours a day, they are paired up with other RFP mem or RPF members for spiritual counseling to resolve issues. And then eight hours a day, they're at hard physical labor. And upon completing this, they are able to re-enter the Sea Org, or not. And uh, that's another long story there. The beliefs of Scientology. The basic belief is that people are immortal spiritual beings who have forgotten their true nature. Well, 
I'll give him that one. Okay. Man is basically good. I won't give him that one. That he is seeking to survive and that his survival depends on himself and his attainment of brotherhood with the universe. No, I definitely won't give him that one. You know, uh, basically I think we can see in Scripture many Scriptures that will go against everything that he is teaching at this point. He talks about having a bridge to total freedom. This is a major thing that he wants to do, is to help people to, to come to this place of total freedom in their being. And to do that, they go through um, multiple stages. Uh, um, and it's done through this auditing, which is kind of a spiritual rehabilitation. And you go through being pre-clear, which is before you get to be clear in auditing, then you're clear, and then you're operating Phaeton. And we'll have to get to that later because that you'll understand what he means by that in just a second. The interesting thing about Scientology is that they don't or they don't demand that you leave your other faith. In other words, there are people in Scientology who believe they're still active practicing Catholics that are also practicing Scientology. Okay, it's you know even though it's a church, but they on his side it does not matter. Um, basically, uh, what we have here is, uh, well, uh, let me talk about the E-meter. This is the way that they determine how stressed out you are. <laughs> and this is a meter. Any engineers here that know what a Wheatstone bridge is? Okay, that's what this is. It's just a Wheatstone bridge. It just sends current through your body and sets in checks out your resistance. Um, but the E-meter is, is used in Scientology to determine where you are in terms of uh, not being clear. This is when you, and it's used a lot of times to introduce people to Scientology. They'll set it up on the street corner and have you come by, hold, uh, you hold the two uh, uh, probes, and then, it, then they ask you questions. And the meter tells the trained Scientologist where your stress points are. This is how they get you to the point where you can just really get that meter clear. So that's the E-meter. Um, it's used in auditing. It measures areas of stress, and it's used, like I said, to invite people into the areas of Scientology. Um, this, um, L. Ron Hubbard claimed that this meter was so sensitive that it could determine whether or not fruits were experiencing pain. And in 1968, according to one source, he made the assertion that tomatoes scream when sliced. <laughs> now, <laughs> all of this might make sense until the story of Xenu. <laughs> okay? The story of Xenu. Now, this particular part of Scientology is not taught for the first two levels of being audited. You go through those, and to go through the first two levels of, of auditing and getting all of the course materials, uh, and to be eligible for what they call OT3, um, which is, again, um, uh, what is that, operationally Thetan, um, Going through the first two levels could cost you upwards and over $100,000 for materials and training. And just 
for the purpose of being introduced to this teaching and to these secrets of Scientology, it's a flat figure of $6,500 to first go through OT3. Now, the story of Xenu. This is a part of their advanced technology doctrine. Xenu was the ruler of, a, of the Galactic Confederacy. 75 million years ago, consisted of 26 stars, 76 planets, including planet Earth. The planets were overpopulated with uh, an average population of 178 billion, billion souls. And the Galactic Confederacy civilization was comparable to ours. They looked like us. In fact, they dressed just like we do. Well, back when they did in the 50s and 60s, that's how they looked. They had cars, trains, boats, and basically lived the same kind of life we did within the Galactic Confederacy. Was Xena was the ruler, and things were so out of control that they were about ready to depose him as the ruler of the Confederacy. And so with the assistance of psychologists, I'm just telling you this, okay? Uh, you know, <laughs> the, he, uh, he gathered billions of his citizens under the pretense of income tax inspection, paralyzed them and froze them with a mixture of alcohol and glycol to capture their souls, loaded them on a spacecraft to transport them to the site of extermination, which was planet Earth. When they reached Earth, these paralyzed citizens were put at the bases of volcanoes. They put hydrogen bombs in the volcanoes and blew everybody up. Now, when they blew all of these, uh, these creatures up, these, these um, you know, paralyzed citizens, they became disembodied victim souls, and they called them Thetans. Now, the Thetans were captured by Xeno's electronic ribbon. <laughs> and... <laughs> They were taken to a kind of cinema where they were forced to watch 3D super colossal motion pictures. <laughs> this implanted what Hubbard termed various misleading data into the memories, such as God, the devil, etc., including all the world religions, particularly Roman Catholicism, and that the crucifixion was basically an implantation from Zeno from his influence. And there were two of these implant stations in the world. One was in Hawaii and the other was in Las Palmas and the Canary Islands. Now, this is, again, uh, Scientologists would, would be really upset that we've treated this with such disrespect because many of them really do believe that this really did happen. Um, and what this also did when they went through this process... Uh, Okay, distant spotty spirits. I got it behind again. Clusters inhabited remaining beings. What happened is there were a few aliens that didn't get blown up. So these disembodied spirits lost their identity, clustered together, and the clusters began to inhabit the bodies. And it is those bodies who later populated Earth. So all of us are inhabited by clusters of thetans. And that's where we get our engrams. So the big thing we have to do is get rid of our thetans. And that's what, what happens uh, in the auditing process. Now, the loyal officers of the Galactic Confederacy finally uh, did away with Xenu. They put him in um, an electronic mountain trap. And he has not escaped to this day. 
we don't know where that is. Um, but then Earth was basically abandoned by the Galactic Confederacy as a prison planet where all of these disembodied Thetans were around. And so we're having to pick up the mess from the Galactic Confederacy. So L. Ron Hubbard's whole deal is to get rid of the Thetans that are inside of us. And that's the bridge to total freedom. Now, if you pay your $6,500 and you get through OT3 and you don't experience the benefits of it, you got to go through it again. <laughs> and you have to pay for it again. 100% graduation fee. Yeah, 100%. It, it's good motivation to make it through. Well, if that wasn't enough for controversies, they do, you know, it's definitely the most controversial religious movement of the 20th century. Scientology condemns all psychiatric and psychological approaches. This is something that Narconon is especially good at doing, is putting doubt into the minds of communities that there's any validity to what's going on in the psychological and psychiatric world in terms of helping people, that the only help is uh, through these materials that they can provide. Uh, Obviously, Scientology is facing a lot of scrutiny for its practices. It's, it's being, uh, of course, uh, considered um, that, uh, an organization that uses brainwashing. Slave-like treatment of its members. This is something that we will see in just a little bit. Um, another is uh, controlling of lives, personal, professional. Sea uh, Org members are discouraged from having children. And if they have children, they are removed at an early age so they can go back to work. Controversy. The attack the attacker strategy. In the attack the attacker strategy, anybody that is against Scientology, they attack. And they harass. And they really come after them with a vengeance. And especially ex-Scientologists are the victims of that. They consider uh, enemies of Scientology fair game, and they're called suppressive persons, SPs. And they can be deprived of property, injured by any means, tricked, sued, and lied, or destroyed. And there are even accounts of people that have committed suicide. Um, trademark and copyright lawsuits are plentiful among Scientology. A disconnection, forced abortions, and human trafficking. I wish I had time to spend on this. There's documentation of forced abortions among Sea Org members, where, again, as they are required to, to not have children or encouraged not to have children, many times the women are encouraged, encouraged to have for forced abortion. Human trafficking, the people in Sea Org sometimes are working hundreds of hours, sometimes 20 hours a day without any breaks. Disconnected from family, they're not allowed to see anybody that's not within Scientology. Preferential treatment to celebrities, which of course is obvious there. Demonstrations have been taking place against Scientology by one group called Anonymous. When I was doing all of my research, they were a group that really gave me a lot of information. Uh, basically, I was the only Catholic reporter, uh, journalist that was doing anything with Scientology, and they were feeding me document after document after document. Not only that, but they were protecting me on the web. Uh, they're a group that is kind of not necessarily all good guys. They also do some other things. It's just about, it's a vigilante group, basically. But this is what they look like in terms of organizing their attacks uh, or their demonstrations on the street. And they were very successful at street demonstrations. 
Many countries have been called upon to outlaw Scientology, and the FBI has been called upon to investigate the strange happening, including the death and human trafficking. There we are. Kirstie Alley, Ann Archer, Catherine Bell, Sonny Bono, Stephen Boyd, Jeff Conway, Chick Corea, Tom Cruise, Isaac Hayes, Jeffrey Lewis, Judy Norton, Taylor, Priscilla Presley, Kelly Preston, Lee Purcell, Giovanni Ribisi. He grew up in Scientology, as did his sister, John Travolta, Greta Van Susteren. And uh, one thing, well, I won't let the cat out of the bag because uh, our, our guest will uh, also reveal something else that's taking place in more recent years. And right now, I want you to meet a, a Scientologist, a former Scientologist. And I'm going to have my group technology guru here <laughs> click it for me. Today, I'm talking with Vance okay, Payne, who I met back in uh, about 2009, I think it was Nancy, when I was... This is Nancy Maney. Scientology for Catholic Online and writing a number of articles. And you were so helpful during those days to... Uh, navigate me toward the right information that I needed as we were covering what was then, and I guess still now, kind of a, a, a very fascinating subject when we look at the whole area of Scientology. So thank you for joining me. You're welcome. Thank you for having me here. This is a, a great project. Well, one of the things that, uh, that uh, came out of that time back then was a book that you wrote called My Billion Year Contract, which I know is still available with Amazon, so that's a good plug for you. I wanted to make Thank sure you, very you get much. that in. But anyway, an interesting title, My Billion Year Contract, what was that? There in Scientology, there's different levels, as in most groups. There's just plain public who pay, then there are volunteers, and then there are okay, 24-7 and, and uh, get food, room, and board. They live there, they work there. And those people are asked to sign, or required to sign, a billionaire contract to show that the commitment goes on. Okay, was this primarily with a Sea Org, with that yes, organization? Yes, this is called Sea Org, the Sea Organization. Anyone who says they're in the Sea Organization has signed a billionaire contract. Okay. Well, I knew that before you, you entered Scientology, you you were already kind of, I guess, have lapsed from, your, from practicing the Catholic faith. What drew you toward Scientology? And back then, it really wasn't considered a religion, was it? No, it, I mean, it was for lawyers and it was for accountants, but as far as the day-to-day -day running of the operation, it was basically a sales of self-help groups. So I, had, I mean, I say I was a lapsed Catholic, but it was actually rather brief because the year before I'd been a Sunday school teacher uh -huh. at college. So, but it was a distant kind of thing. You get to the teenage years, you get confirmed, and I drifted. Right. And society in the 70s was outrageous. <laughs> Right. Okay. So I didn't join them to join a religion. So you went in there to kind of help with the uh, the auditing process of helping people to get clear, in other words. And they did not promote anything about God. Uh-huh. Okay. Well, uh, tell me, kind of summarize what your involvement in Scientology was over the time you were in it. I worked in intelligence, which means they have their own intelligence bureau, and they go and gather information on critics, people who speak out against the church, or people who want to sue them, or in other ways criticize them. They don't like criticism. So they go after these people, and in intelligence, 
I worked on that on, on finding out information about the people that were critical of Scientology. And then I worked in their Division 6, which was to gather new members. Okay. Now, was this all under the Sea Org, Sea Organization? Uh, yes, that was all under the Sea Org. Okay. Yeah, I know that one of the, uh, uh, the strategies they used was attack the attacker. Absolutely. They still use that. Yeah. Still use that. Yeah, back when I was writing, I had some phone calls from uh, Tommy Davis back in those days. He could be uh, persistent. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, how long were you involved? Um, I was involved pretty much fully for eight years. Um, and then I was involved on the outskirts, on the edges, for another 15 years, maybe. And during those 15 years, it was a slow slide out. Okay. Um, I was already, my, I already had my son in a Catholic church. I was already back to church on my own. Um, and in fact, I had drifted so far that the Intelligence Bureau got wind that I was not thinking with the group. And they brought me in for an interrogation that day. And I remember I went to church that day, and I lit a candle, and I said some prayers that this would have a very successful outcome in some way. I was intimidated to go in. You might ask, why did you go in if you didn't you know, care for them anymore? And it was because they practiced shunning. Right. They practiced disconnection and destroying families. And my husband was not at that time in the same place as I was. So I could lose my husband, my job, my home, my children, everything. That was into their interrogation. Okay. And, and so uh, were you considered at that point an SP? I was cons I'm sure I was considered an SP. They never have given it to me in writing, Uh huh. unlike other people. But you weren't put in any kind of uh, restricted area or anything like some people have been. Um, that that did happen to me. That happened earlier in my time in Scientology, and I go into detail in that in the book. But at this particular time, um, no. Thankfully, they did not. Okay. Thankfully. Well, um, so as you left, was I, I know that uh, some of the people leaving Scientology have uh, nail-biting stories of um, you know racing out on a motorcycle in the dead of night, kind of a thing. Uh, you know, with people chasing them. What was it like for you? When I left the Sea Org, and I, and I do agree with you, people who leave the Sea Org, for the most part, escape. They don't leave. They don't give notice and leave. They escape. And uh, for myself, they, um, my husband and I were running their celebrity center, Celebrity Center International. We were both taken to the big blue complex in Los Angeles and told we were removed from that job and we had to go work in the rehabilitation project force, a sort of labor camp that they have for people that aren't with the program. Uh, but we had a three-year-old son at that time. We didn't know where he was and we were under guard. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. So it was pretty hair-raising uh, for the two of us to plan our escape and to get out. And we did. We basically ran. Ran for the bus and then tried to find our child. And once we were reunited, it, we were never ever broken up again. Okay. So is that when you entered into more of your kind of on the edge of Scientology? Yes. Uh -huh. That's what I, you know, I was in the PTA. I worked in the school. I was just, that was something that I supported, you know, or or used in some way. Mm -hmm. well, and 
you you really kind of severed all all relationship. You could have gone so many different directions. What brought you back to the Christian faith, and particularly to your Catholic faith? You think? Well. Christian faith, I've always, I never considered I lost it. And in Scientology, I never bumped into anything where they said you can't have those beliefs anymore. Uh, as far as the Catholic Church, yes, there was, um, I lapsed due to a lot of different, you know, the bureaucracy of the church, but it wasn't the faith. Um, and I went to a, a, a nun who was a spiritual advisor, and uh, my son, my younger, my older son went to a high school that was Catholic which was incredible. Uh And uh, my younger son and I did a tour of all the churches in Los Angeles because I wanted that that community in my life. Uh He's the one that loved the Catholic Church the best. Oh, wow. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And that was like kind of surprising to me. Uh, But I did realize then after that tour that most other religions send their kids away during the service. Catholics are inclusive. They're inclusive from birth. And that, I looked at it from my son's eyes. That makes a big difference. That makes a very big difference. So yes, we have our rituals and we stand and we do this, but the children go alone. The nice thing about this then is that he felt the safety within the church. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, I know here around uh, the Washington, D.C. area, we have, uh, I think it's one of the earliest Scientology churches. And uh, they're very active in, in recruiting still. Uh, and from what I gather, like you said, they, they don't make you renounce your current faith, but they want you to come into Scientology and hopefully you'll leave the other things behind. Uh, what, what kind of, uh, I guess, wisdom and, and warnings would you give to people who are being contacted or encouraged by people from Scientology? Um, first of all, I wouldn't even know this. Even with my long, in-depth service there, my work that I did directly with Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, I did not know that Scientology is based on satanic and black magic rituals. Mm-hmm. That is not known. In which I think it was only, what, 15, 20 years ago, um, that all this material became free for people to see. And his big mentor was Alistair Crowley. Right. Called himself the Beast in 666. Um, there's a bit about this in, in my book, but that's part of why my strength comes from the Catholic faith. For me personally, a chaplain, while they are multi-faith, have to have their own because of the, as you said, the safety. Mm-hmm. Because... Um, for me, when you're fighting evil, I wouldn't want to have any other power. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot from the Catholic Church and my faith. Now, when, when you were in Scientology, did you get to the point where you were uh, introduced to the whole concept of Xenu? Yes, I was. Yes, I was. How did that um, hit you when you heard it? Okay, I was a Catholic. And I didn't get to, you don't get to talk about this. I never was able to talk, right? And years later, I found out that some people actually believed it. And I was, and they took it literally, if you understand what I mean, this bizarre story of aliens and abductions and volcanoes. And it was a science fiction story. To me, I never enjoyed science fiction. 
Harvard was a science fiction writer, so I just assumed he wrote this truth that he felt in the fiction of a story. Mm -hmm. But that's not how the majority of the members feel. I mean, they read that and they think this is the, the truth and that they're infested with these, these alien beings. Yeah, the Thetans. The Thetans. Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, it, it, it's like, to some degree, it's like an exorcism, except, you know, I've always believed there are spirits. There's a spirit world, and it's here with us. And I, I, so I didn't have any problem thinking that there are spirits around me or that might have an effect on me. But personally, when I got to the point in that, I went, why am I, why am I working to get rid of them? Because that was what the process was. Mm-hmm. Some of these might be very light beings and very helpful. And what about my guardian angel? And why would I want to get rid of my guardian angel? You know, it was like, so for me personally, that was when I stopped with that kind of activity. Uh-huh. But in the, but I never, un, I, that was just my viewpoint. We weren't allowed to talk to others. So I never was able to share that until I was out for many years. Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So my big, biggest advice to people on that, yeah. Technology is wanting it and explore it both sides and you will see because now we have that freedom and that has made a huge huge difference the fruit on that tree is not good and you will see that yeah there was uh, I know uh, one group that's been very active in combating Scientology called Anonymous yes a group of basically uh, computer hackers that have banded together on uh, online to kind of unveil a lot of what Scientology is doing, not only in America, but around the world. Uh, As far as you know, are they still kind of doing that kind of work? They're still doing it. They still have some pickets. It's not like it was. They've really already, they've made huge points. They started out not knowing the people. I know the people that started it. They didn't really know if they were going to be able to get protests and it was amazing. There was a protest at every Scientology organization across the globe at the same time on Saturday. And they continued that every month. Mm-hmm. Every month. Um, but they also do other work on the Internet, like, like I said, like getting this useful information for people interested in Scientology out. Because the science is on black magic and Satanism. Mm-hmm. It's, it's fascinating when you see the, uh, the information now on the Internet about uh, Hubbard's role with uh, Jack Parsons and Aleister Crowley and all of that. And uh, even during that point in time where uh, Crowley was suspicious of Hubbard. Exactly. Crowley wasn't even a big fan of Hubbard's. Yeah, so it, it's fascinating to see how all of this kind of has worked together to produce this. Um, one of the, I guess one of the basic questions that a lot of people ask is, how can you even consider this a church? What do you think about that? I can't consider it a church, um, in part because I worked at international management, opening up new organizations in new countries. And the exact same package, like McDonald's, like a franchise, right, could be opened in any country anywhere in the world as a religion or as not, with no changes. So what does that say? Mm-hmm. What does that say? Japan it's not a religion. Mexico, it's not a religion. Mm-hmm. There are countries where it operates exactly the same as America, but they're not a religion. Is it somewhat of a localized idea then in America for it to be considered a church, or do they use that term in other countries? They've always used church in America um, 
as I said, for tax reasons, for accountant and lawyer reasons, right? Right. Still, the day-to-day operations isn't really churchy. Mm-hmm. Uh, now they use the word, oh, they use all these church words, and it just... I, I, I used to um, talk with friends of mine who had been involved in this dual nature of Scientology, of yes, we're a church, but we're a business, it's untenable. And we would talk about if they're going to be a church, then they should be a church. And they should be caring and open and not there to suck everybody's bank account. But if they're not, then they should just continue as they are and pay taxes, you know, and, and have some kind of regulation over them. Yeah, that's, that's always been a question and a concern. I know uh, uh, that down in Australia, they were trying to completely outlaw it and uh, they weren't successful, but that was one of their major concerns. Well, it is outlawed now in, in France. Well, in Germany and France, it's it's on the watch, and they've been convicted of fraud mm-hmm. in France multiple times, and there's other big court cases going in Europe. Europe is much more able to deal with this and to see it for what it is. Mm-hmm. In America, Scientology has gathered celebrities and they use these celebrities to influence politics in Washington. And they also have a lot of money. And they use it to influence politics in Washington. Scientology, you might not see it out, outright, but it's very, it has a very, very intense shadow presence in Washington. They have lobbyists. It's interesting, yeah. Because I think we hear about the celebrities on the West Coast, the Hollywood celebrities, the John Travolta's. Tom Cruise, Kelly Preston, all of those. Um, but I don't think that, you know, that the, a lot of the lobbying and the, the stuff that goes on behind the scenes, they must keep it somewhat under wraps. They do. They have other front groups, other names of companies that would donate to legislators. Mm-hmm. Like, they, they won't necessarily do it above board. But then when they need and want something, they'll bring John Travolta down to Congress. And all the people working in Congress are like, Gaga, oh, it's John Travolta, it's John Travolta. And and what they're trying to get past just kind of sneaks by. Interesting. Interesting. And do you see uh, any shaking of the celebrity tree there in uh, Hollywood as far as people leaving? It's not well known, but but first of all, I want to say people talk about all these celebrities they have in Scientology. Well, they've had leaving celebrities, and they've had no new celebrities. Leah Remini is a great example. She she had the courage to leave and to bring her family with her. Um, the latest celeb that I've heard about is Louis Farrakhan, and I don't know if you know this, but Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam has now become Scientology. Yeah. Well, I know that back in uh, 2008, 2009, your life was pretty wild because you were being attacked by a number of different people, you know, and uh, all of that. Are things kind of quieted down for you now? Things have quieted down. I've spent the last two years I've been in in theology in course at uh, Loyola to get my master's in pastoral studies. Um, I also did clinical training as a chaplain back east and in hospitals there. So I've been more um, just watching from the balcony, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's always something to be cautious of. But truthfully, no, they, they don't have the strength they used to have. They do not. They don't have the people they used to have, and they don't have the power they used to have. But don't. But I can't be fooled because they still have 
something called war chess to then fight critics. Mm-hmm. Now, what do you see for the future of Scientology? Do you see it staying around a long time, or do you think that that it will finally kind of wear itself out? I think it's very hard to completely eradicate a group. It's getting smaller and smaller. Um, with the legal storm on the horizon, yeah, there could be some big shakeups. But the Hare Krishnas are still around, yeah. and they had a big murder on the East, you know, and, and they, much smaller. You don't see them everywhere anymore, but they're still there. Um, and I think it'll be like that for Scientology. I apologize for some of the, the problems we had with the Internet. Uh, it's tough to get a good connection between here and the, and the uh, West Coast. Anyway, my time is up. In fact, I'm a little over time, but I, I wanted you to see that whole presentation. Nancy Maney goes back a long way. She was an assistant to L. Ron Hubbard. Her book, My Billionaire Contract, it would be a, a very fascinating read. Um, also, if you really want a book that is the tell-all on Scientology, uh, Inside Scientology by Janet Reitman. Uh, well-researched, well-done book. So I would uh, commend that to you as well. So uh, we're going to have to have questions in a little bit. We want to take a break first. Thank you so much, Father Sly. Father, earlier you made reference to L. Ron Hubbard being removed uh, from an organization order like dethroned. Do you have any uh, insight as far as what would the ground for his removal or this action taken by the board? Uh, I I think part of it had to do with, and this is just from my study, and there could be a lot more to it, but just the fact that in order for the organization to have more of a legal standing, they needed a board that was much more in control rather than it be just you know a pyramid organization with one single person at the top. And although that was officially done, there was still, from everything that I've discovered, he still had, had a lot of influence over the board and over what was going on at the time. Uh, yeah, Father. I was wondering, because uh, one of the things you mentioned was the billion-year contract. Do they think they're going to live that long? And if so, what, what, how do they explain Ron L. Hubbard's death? <laughs> um, well, basically, they, they believe that their, their being is immortal, and there will be a time where there will be kind of a reconstruction, the way I understand it. Uh, in fact, um, the uh, Sea Org, which is the one that with the billion-year contract, their motto is Revenimus, uh, which means we come back. And so there is this sense in which they will come back that there is, um, you know, a, a greater dimension to, to life than what is taking place here. Uh, Father, we're getting a question from Mike online, although I don't know where he's call, uh, coming from. He's saying, what has been your experience in counseling people who have embraced Scientology but may have doubts about their commitment to Scientology? Um, I've had only limited experience, and a lot of it was done uh, by people who either contacted me, email, or uh, by phone, or online uh, in another way. And the reason for that is that many of them are kind of nervous about the fact that they're involved in Scientology and uh, want to be very careful about talking about getting out because of the fact that if they are involved in some of the organizations, there's a little bit more control in their lives. Um, Basically, a lot of it has to do with the question, is any of it really true? Uh, Particularly having to do with the stress and all of those things. 
you know, because a lot of them feel that that has some compatibility with the other aspects of life, that you can remove stress and things like that. And there is some similarity. For example, if you go into some of the healing of memories movement in the Protestant world, and I think even in some of the Catholic organizations back in the 60s and 70s, they used a lot of regression therapy and a lot of things of memory heals, you know, healing of the memories and things which looks a lot like auditing. So uh, there's a sense in which, uh, again, helping the individual to understand um, what is really the magisterial teaching of the church and where they are in terms of their place in Christ. My, my whole goal in it is evangelization, you know, that, that they would come fully back to Christ and embrace the fullness of the truth which is found in his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension and in the teachings of Christ which continue. Hi, Father. On one of your slides with the goal of Scientology, that quote by Hubbard, it said um, there's a phrase where the able can prosper. And I was wondering if Hubbard had anything to say about the physically or mentally um, challenged and how that relates to that phrasing. Yeah, I think that the phrasing of where the able can prosper, he's talking about those who are in the clear those who are freed from all of the things that, that are discovered through auditing. Because if those engrams are there, you're not able to do it. Again, his whole thing is really about the mental, uh, the mental area of your life, but that that also affects the physical. So a lot of times I think that you know, he might say, or a Scientologist might say, that the reason for your physical disability uh, may be the fact that you have this engram, this bad experience that needs to be healed, and then this will take care of that. Um, there were several claims, um, you know, in, in Dianetics and Scientology uh, about that, uh, having to do with uh, even poor eyesight, common cold, and other things like that, which he asserted were a part of the engram issue. Uh, Father Sly? I've always wondered, uh, I've never heard any relationship between Scientology and Christianity, but their symbol looks an awful lot like the Christian cross. Uh, could you comment on why they chose to adopt that as their symbol? I have no idea, um, other than the fact that, again, being a church, one of the things that they, they want to do is make sh people feel like there is some semblance of, uh, of Christianity uh, may be there uh, so that they might feel comfortable. Uh, the, it's a cross with the rays behind it. And, uh, but that's something I really I have not done enough study to, to give you a, a learned answer on. Thank you so much, Father Sly. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.